Good morning. 11th chapter, the gospel, the fourth gospel, the gospel of John. And we left off with Jesus showing himself who he is, who he's always from eternity past has always been, a merciful, a faithful God. And he shows himself strong in the life and the family of Martha and Mary by raising their brother, Lazarus, from the dead. Don't get it twisted. Where Lazarus was, he never wanted to come back this way. I'm sure he was kicking and uh, screaming and probably a little upset with Martha and Mary that they missed him so much that Jesus called them back. Remember, he was there in the grave for four days. We talked about tradition. After three days, the body is so in decay at this time that the spirit, they said in their tradition, would depart. So there was no paddling him back. There was no widow of name touching the beer after one day. There was no uh, Dorcas, uh, maybe 12 hours. He calls her back to life. No, he was dead. And in the eyes of everyone and anyone who had eyes to see, after he did this, his last of seven signs that John depicted and pointed saying, by these signs, we should know that this man, Jesus Christ, is the Messiah. He is the Savior of all men. Anyone who had eyes to see could see this. Matter of fact, that's the reason John wrote this fourth gospel. He says in John 20, verse 30 and 31, And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book right here. But these are written not that you... But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing, here it is, you may have life in his name. He gives us his last sign, and that was once again raising Lazarus from the dead. In verse 45, it says this, Then many of the Jews who had come to Mary and had seen the things Jesus did believed in him. But some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things Jesus did. They did this with no friendly intentions. They were trying to get Jesus in more hot water and more trouble with these religious elite than he already was in. And this also shows us here, as the book of the Gospel of John shows us, he's always depicting, he's always showing these contrasts of the sons of light and the sons of darkness. And if you are born again, please realize that it's only because of what God has done, the work of God through his son, Jesus Christ, that we ourselves believe in the Messiah. Salvation begins and ends with the Lord. We are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And he goes on to say, and the faith that we have, he's so good, he gives that to us to believe. So where is boasting? There's none. It's all by grace. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 
verses 3 through 6, but even if our gospel is veiled. One translation says, if it is hidden, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age, Satan, has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. For we do not preach ourselves. You're not saved by Pastor Victor. You're not saved by Pastor Jonathan or Pastor Brian. We're saved by the living word of God. So we do not preach ourselves, but Christ, Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For it, is, for it is the God who commanded light, I love this verse, to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Salvation is all from him. Verse 47, he says this, Then the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, What shall we do? For this man works many signs. This is the only time in the fourth gospel that the Sanhedrin is mentioned. When he says the chief priest, he's speaking of the Sadducees. They were the elitists of the bunch. Remember, the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. They only believed the first five chapters, the first five books of the Bible, the, the Torah. They didn't believe in miracles. And then you have the Pharisees. And then it says they gathered a council. That word council, uh, son, which means with, and then hedron, which means seat. And that's where we get the name, the Sanhedrin. So if you're reading the New King James or the King James, anytime it says council is speaking of those 70 plus one, the high priest. This is the Sanhedrin. It's like the Jewish Supreme Court. Anytime they had to come together for a a meeting. Now, you could have a little group of religious leaders in villages and in towns that they would call themselves the Sanhedrin. But that body in Jerusalem, which consisted of the high priests, they were the boys who could put the law down, who could, who could make you squirm and, 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 and unsteady of your walk because they were very peculiar in what they would do and they could change things, their tradition and all of those things. So this is the group in Jerusalem that is getting together because they've been hearing of the miracles that Jesus, this itinerant rabbi, is doing, how he's healing the lame and making the blind to see, and all of these signs going into villages and just healing everyone. But it's not until he resuscitates Lazarus from the grave after four days, they say, we've got to do something about this man. And that's what they are doing here. They said, for this man works many sons, verse 48. If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him. That's crazy. You would think that's what they would want. Uh, Habakkuk speaks about one of these days, the earth 
will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. Habakkuk says, as the water covers the sea, but that's not going to happen right here, what Jesus was doing. They didn't have to worry about that. But the Lord says, one day that will happen. Everyone, they said, will believe in him. And this is the issue they have. And the Romans will come and take away both our place, speaking of the temple, and their position in the temple and our nation itself. And remember, this had happened before when the Babylonians came in and carried them away for 70 years, just like the prophets spoke about. We have to understand that at this time, Israel is subjugated to the Romans here. And the thing about this, of course, no one likes to be subjugated in bondage. And every time the Passover would come around, the Roman guards and the Roman legions and and Caesar would say, hey, we need to bring more troops to Judea, to Israel, because there's, there's going to be an uproar, because all this would do at Passover would make them remember their freedom that they had and the faithfulness of Yahweh to set them free from the bondage of Egypt. So every time Passover would roll around, there would always be some kind of uproar in the city. At this time, the governor or the prefect was a guy by the name of Valerius Gratus. We know after him, Pontius Pilate comes on the scene. Caiaphas is the high priest at this time. Caiaphas has the longest stretch in, in, in Jewish history of being the high priest. I think he was high priest for about 18 years, around 31, 32 A.D., his reign stopped. But before him, for about six years, it was a, his father-in-law, Annas, was the high priest. And even though Annas is not the high priest at this time, he's the power broker behind the throne. And so Caiaphas, at this time, he hits it all pretty well with Pontius Pilate, who's the prefect, who's the governor at this time. So things seem to be going well until Jesus continues to make his way towards the cross. Jesus knew he had about three, three and a half years for his ministry down here, and then he would be called home. So he's doing miracle after miracle, and now the Sanhedrin has gotten together and says something must be done with this man, or else the Romans are going to come in and take our place, the temple, and the nation. And you know what? The scriptures, as we know, has spoke of the prophets, speaking of Jesus Christ coming into the world, and all they had to do, the Jewish nation, is to place their trust in Jesus Christ. It's like that all the time. When, when something bad comes down the pipe, if we would only stand still and realize that we serve a mighty God and everything that comes our way filters through his hands, he's allowed it, it's going to be okay. But the Jewish nation as a whole did not do that. 
They did not want this man, Jesus Christ, to reign over them. So the thing that the, the, the Sanhedrin thought would happen to them if they didn't do anything to this Messiah, it happens to them anyway because they did not bow their knee to Jesus Christ. And that's ironic. That, that's the way it goes in life today. If we just submit to Jesus Christ's will in our lives, thinking that we know it all, and just say, okay, Lord, you handle this. You love me. I trust you. I will allow you to handle it. We always come out better on the other side. It's only when we try to get ahead of the Lord and do things our way, most of the time, we are either devastated then or along the way, we become that way. That's what happens here in general. Luke 19, uh, verse 42 through 44 says this, saying, if you had known, Jesus speaking, if you had known even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, that's what he wanted, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. They would not wait, and it passed them by. Jesus was broken and he had a broken heart over everything that was happening in Jerusalem because they would not turn to him. And here the Sanhedrin is making their official decision. Verse 49 tells us, And one of them, Caiaphas, being the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. Caiaphas was known as being very rude and being arrogant. Josephus tells us that Caiaphas was like that because he was one of the Sadducees, and the Sadducees always looked down upon the Pharisees, and they would treat them like aliens or foreigners. So they didn't put much stock into what the Pharisees would tell them. They were very condescending. They were very rude. So he says, you know nothing at all. Nor do you consider that it is expedient for us, it's necessary, it will be beneficial for us that one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish. And John is looking at this many years later so he can write the commentary on it. He says in verse 51, now this he did not say on his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. John views his words as being overruled by the power of the Holy Spirit just because of Caius's position. And I don't know if Caiaphas ever comes to know Jesus Christ as his personal Lord and Savior, but right here I know he hadn't did that. But God, just because of his position allows him to prophesy what would happen to the Messiah, honoring the position that once again the Lord had put him in. When Paul was brought in front of the Sanhedrin, he says this in Acts chapter 23. 
And I want to read this just because once again, he wasn't thrilled about the high priest, Paul wasn't, but he honors the Lord. Then Paul, looking earnestly at the council, the Sanhedrin, said, men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. What did Jesus do when he was struck on the mouth? He turned his face. If I've did something wrong, tell me. But if I haven't, why do you hit me? That shows the holiness of who Jesus Christ is. We look up to Paul and we should. But notice what Paul does. Then Paul said to him, God will strike you. That sounds like something I would say. You whitewashed wall. For you sit to judge me according to the law, and do you command me to be struck contrary to the law? And those who stood by said, do you revile God's high priest? He shouldn't have did that, said that. Then Paul said, I did not know, brethren, that he was the high priest, for it is written, he rebukes his own self, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Pray for me with some of our rulers. But God has allowed what he's allowed in our country. Paul tells us also in Romans 13, 1, same thing. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Remember in the, whole, the Old Testament, when Aaron, who is, was the first high priest, when they clothed him in all of his royal priestly garments, he had two stones that he would put not on the breastplate because the breastplate was the 12 tribes of Israel, but somewhere underneath that breastplate, he had two stones. We don't know if they were, it was a black or white uh, stone. Urim and the Thurim means, they say it means light and perfection. And whenever they wanted to know the will of God, should we do this or shouldn't we do that? They would cast these two stones. And however they landed, they said, okay, Lord, you made this happen. We know David does this. When he goes to Abiathar and he says, where is the Urim and the Thummim? And they would cast these stones. We don't have to do that anymore, praise the Lord. The Bible calls us priests of God. And anytime we want to know the will of God, we do what? We go to the scriptures. And we can go into his word, and sometimes he may speak to us and let us know his will. And it's so good. It's it's much better that way. Psalms 119.5 says this, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I love 2 Peter 1.20.21 says this, Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, not made up by any man. For prophecy never came by the will of man. But holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Chuck Swindoll says, as they were born, it's a nautical term. As the wave of the Holy Spirit would lead them to write exactly what they wanted, he wanted them to write. So verse 51 tells us again, now this he did not say on his own authority, Caiaphas, but being high priest that year, he prophesied 
that Jesus would die for the nation. Once again, that word for, who pair, it means in place of, instead of, it speaks of substitutionary atonement. You go sit down. You cannot hit this fastball of sin and death. Jesus comes to hit it. We can go to the bullpen. That's what he speaks of here. Instead of, in place of. And not for that nation only, thank God, but also that he would gather together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad, speaking of the Gentiles too. Jesus had said in John chapter 10, as the Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And other sheep, thank you, Jesus, I have, which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. Ephesians speaks of that. The wall of separation has been brought down into one. So he says in verse 53, then from that day on, they plotted to put him to death. They signed his death warrant right here. Remember, once again, John speaks of seven signs, and each one of them, every sign preached a sermon. It should have. They should have understood what was going on. And when John puts this sign before us, he has a lesson attached to every one, and he brings us to the pinnacle of his signs, raising, once again, raising Lazarus from the grave. Game should have been over. Everyone should have bowed at his feet and says, you're God. You're the Messiah. But they were worried about their position in this world. In this world. I might could understand having a great position in this world, and it's going to last for eternity. I might could wrestle with that a little bit. But whether you are a king or you are a queen, what's 70 years? What's 80 years? It's nothing. James tells us it's a vapor. Here for a moment and disappear. Mm-mm. This is a mirage. We need to live for eternal things. That's what Jesus is wanting these 70 elite religious leaders and those that were following him, them to understand, you're going to have to bow the knee to me one day. And I'm giving you all of these signs that you would understand these things, but they don't. Even when their hearts were being convicted, how could it not if he makes the blind to see? and makes the lame to walk, and they would scroll through their scroll and see Isaiah. And Isaiah pointedly says, when you see these things happening, make no doubt about it, that dude's the Messiah. But they were worried about their position. That's what they were worried about, and their place, and their temple. Matter of fact, Matthew tells us it was because of envy that they crucified him. 
I like where I am. I'm, I love what I'm doing. I love my position. My life is great. My life is fine. It will always be that way. 80 years, 90 years, you're gone. You'll find out quickly, no, no, it will not. Jesus is heartbroken by this. They're banging their heads, these religious leaders, and all of those who have seen and witnessed these signs and does not bow to knee to Jesus, they're banging their heads against the wall. Romans chapter 2, verse 4 through 5 tells us this, or do you despise the riches of his goodness? He woke us up this morning. His forbearance, he's been patient with me already this morning, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance. It's not God's will that anyone should perish. But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath, and it is coming, and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Everything he does is righteous. And the unbeliever will run head on until his perfect righteousness. Verse 54 tells us, therefore, Jesus knows what's going on. He, he knows they're after him. Jesus no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there into the country near the wilderness to a city called Ephraim. So he left the vicinity of Jerusalem. He goes down to about 15 miles to this spot. They say it's about 12 to 15 miles away from Bethel. And he stays there. And he pours in continuously to his disciples because he knows he won't be here much longer. Things are winding down. And he tells us this because John, once again, is writing to the church. He says in verse 55, And the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went from the country up to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. In Leviticus, I also think in Numbers, they speak of this purification ceremonial washing that they had to do, especially as you're coming, those, the diaspora Jews, as they come from different places, they had to go. Remember, three feasts the Jewish men always had to go to. And of course, most of them would load up their families and they would go also. So as they're traveling to Jerusalem, they could step on an unmarked grave, especially you didn't want to step on an unmarked Gentile grave. But they're coming to these ceremonial washings, so they would get there about a week before time, and they would get in these, right at the Holder gates, usually they said Jesus would make his entrance to the temple precinct. And before you would go up, right into the walls, carved into the walls, they would have these mikvahs. It was almost like a baptismal, but they were for ceremonial washings. And they would do that, and they would make sure they would stay clean before Passover. And that's what he's speaking of here. That's what's happening here. He says in verse 56, then they sought Jesus, and it's given us the climate, what's going on, and spoke among themselves as they stood in the temple. Can you imagine three million or more people around this temple precinct? 
and the buzz is, is he coming? It wasn't new news that the religious leaders sought him. They just thought they were seeking him to arrest him, but they were seeking him to destroy him. So they says, then they sought Jesus and spoke among themselves as they stood in the temple. What do you think that he will not come to the feast? And the construct of this verse of this sentence is saying, we know he's not coming to the feast. So it's negative. No way he's coming to the feast. He knows they're threatening his life at this point. It says, now both the chief priests, the Sadducees, and the Pharisees had given a command that if anyone knew where he was, he should report it, that they might seize him. It seems finally they make this public statement. Put, they put out this all points bulletin. If you see this man, let us know. He's killed about 50 people. None of those things. He's been good to 50 people or more. He's been healing 50 people or more, but yet they want to seize him. Darkness. The depravity of man doesn't mean you're as bad as you can can be or could be. Once again, when I used to listen to Chuck Swindoll on cassette tapes many years ago, I always remember this. It means that you're just like a smurf. You're blue all over. There's, we're depraved. It might not manifest in murder. It might not manifest in other things. But when we stand before a holy God, we're blue all over. We're sinners. And that's why they want him arrested to put him to death. That if anyone knew where he was, he should report it that they may, might seize him. And there's no chapter break here. Then or therefore, we come to this feast at Bethany. Once again, it's the home of Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. And I believe Simon the leper, it seems. Now, there's some questions, but I believe Simon the leper is their father. Verse 1 tells us, Then six days before the Passover... When there's already a great threat for his life, this family who is pretty, we find out they're pretty well off, a family of means, they gather together and they have this great feast or this great party for Lazarus and Jesus, and they're there. And this is where Mary will anoint Jesus' feet and wipe them with her hair. And this is not, I want you to understand, this is not the same scene in Luke chapter 7. Because Luke chapter 7, they're speaking of Simon the Pharisee. So you have Simon the leper here with Martha and the bunch. And in Luke 7, he speaks of Simon the Pharisees. And if you study that carefully, the reason I know that, That takes place in Galilee, Simon the Pharisees, and not in Judea or Bethany, where this account is occurring now. That was in Galilee. And in Galilee, this woman who washes 
Jesus' feet with her tears, remember she's a notorious sinner. Maybe a prostitute really doesn't tell us, but we know she, the Bible says she's a notorious sinner. And that is not Mary, the Mary of Bethany. And once again, think back. Simon here says within himself, as he looks at this notorious sinner, this man, if, and remember I told you the word if in the Greek has three different class conditions. This if is if, and I know so. If this man, he thought, if this man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what manner of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And remember, Jesus turns to him and says, Simon, when I came into your home, you didn't show me any hospitality, and that's what you should have done. You didn't wipe my feet. This woman has not ceased since she's come to weep and to wash my feet with her tears and to wipe them with her hair. And take note also in this scene, it's Mary of Bethany, who seems to be a very godly woman here, young woman. But the, the thing I like about these two contrasts, whether it's this notorious sinner or whether it's Mary, a very godly woman, what does Jesus do? He accepts both of their worship. Why? Because it's true devotion. God looks at the heart, and I'm so glad. He doesn't care about your past. If you've repented of your sins and given your life to Jesus Christ, he separates our sins as far as the east is from the west, never to bring them up again. Hallelujah. I'm thankful for that. I'm clean. I'm white in his sight. I have a new name in the kingdom of heaven. So he accepts both of their worship. I might have sullied my name a little bit down here. People I knew, some of my so-called friends I knew 30 years from, from now, if I see them, Vic, I hear you've changed. I hear you're doing this. I hear you're doing that. Oh, but I remember when we, <laughs> I said, yeah, I remember when we too. There will be none of that in the kingdom of God. I'll be so happy. I'll be so happy. That's purification. Not being washed in a mikvah, but washed by the blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ. All our righteousness to him is nothing but filthy rags. That's why she gives him this kind of devotion. And remember, Simon the leper, one day, someone had to go and tell his family, Simon's not coming back. Because remember, first you might see a little white mark. You might see a little discoloration of sin and right then and there, you Bible scholars, what would you have to do? Go show yourself to the priest. That would be a long walk. Go and show yourself to the priest. And if you went there and they examined you, and if you had leprosy, 
There was no returning home saying your goodbyes. It was over with. You never saw your family members anymore. And if you were walking down the street in that leper colony or if you tried to get into the city for a hundred paces, you'd have to put on leper clothing, put your hand over your lip, cry out, unclean, unclean. We've only, I'm not going to say that because a lot of people passed away because of COVID. But my point is, if you see someone with a mask on, whether you want to or not, you start trying to ease away a little bit. Even now with my allergies, I put on a mask when I'm doing yard work and they try to stay away from me. (laughs) But my point is, can you imagine saying, having to say unclean for a hundred paces? Everybody begins to separate. People begin to throw rocks at you. Simon is sitting at this table clean as a baby's bottom. Simon is sitting there. The disciples are sitting there. Lazarus is sitting there. And Lazarus looks across and sees Jesus. And he knows, Lazarus knows where the Christ has come from because he was there. And I can't help But to think of Philippians, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. Lazarus knew where he came from. And Lazarus was blown away that the Lord would be sitting there. He would walk among us, that he would allow himself to be thirsty, to be hungry, to be spat upon, to have his beard plucked out, all because of us, his sheep. That's what's happening at this feast. Then six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, who had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead. There they made him a supper, and Martha served. The imperfect tense, she was continually serving. But Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. Check Martha out. She's in a much better place, a much better state of mind in this scene. Because when we first meet her in in, in Luke chapter 10, she's a little ruffled about what her sister was doing. Remember that? Instead of picking her own row of peas, she was worried about Mary. And she goes to Jesus and says, Lord, do you not care? that my sister has left me to serve alone. Therefore, tell her to help me. Jesus had to redirect her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled about many things, but one thing is needed, and Mary has chosen that good part, which will not be taken away from her. What a lesson learned, and she learned that, and it transformed her entire life 
And she learns this lesson, you guys. Mary learns this lesson only one way. By the trials that Jesus Christ allowed to enter her life. That's how she learned this lesson. James chapter 1, verses 2 and 3 tells us, My brethren, count it all joy. I like what they say about joy. Calm delight when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces hoopamony, patience. You know, we are supposed to flee from what? Temptation. It, the Bible, find it if you can. I know it doesn't say any time to flee from a trial. We are supposed to learn something in trials when that pressure is placed upon us. We're supposed to sit there and understand that God is good and God has this. And he wants me to learn something in this trial that when I come out on the other side, I'm much more in the likeness and in the image of Jesus Christ. Those are trials. That's why Jesus has allowed this trial to come to Lazarus and his family. Mary knows this now. I mean, Martha knows this now. Remember when Jesus told her, Jesus says, your brother will rise again. She says, I know, I know the theology. You taught me well. Oh, yeah, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection and the last day. Then Jesus tells her, I am the resurrection and the life. And then he says, do you believe this? I'm sure those words are still echoing in her ears as she's sitting there looking at her brother, as she's sitting there probably looking at her dad, carrying on fun and great conversations with Jesus, and she's just serving away. Her service, Martha's service turns into worship. That's how it works. It tells us this in Colossians chapter 3. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. I believe Martha had her best china out, her best silverware out, everything nice and beautiful because she is grateful for what the Lord has done. She is grateful that the Lord has brought her brother back from the dead. Do we show it? Do we show Sunday through Saturday, how grateful we are that we've been brought back from the dead. Dead in trespasses and sins without hope of God until Jesus moves. That's what Mary, that's what Martha is doing here. She's serving, she's doing the practical things, and she's worshiping him while she does that. Now, I know we have all... We all have different gifts. Some people have the gifts of help. 
gifts of service, and they just go around and they serve everywhere. But the problem, the issue you might run into with that, just because that's your gift, doesn't make that everyone's gift. So if someone's serving, cleaning, picking up, doing all those things, if you're not careful, you'll begin to say, why am I doing this? And nobody's helping me. That's your gift. We'll get together and help sooner or later, but that might be your gift. And you know that's your gift because you're always involved in, okay, if something needs done, hey, I volunteer, good at details, good at all those things. But you have to remember, are you doing it for the Lord? Whatever we do, whatever ministry we may be in here, We should be doing it for the Lord. It's our devotion. It's our worship. And I believe while Martha is setting the table as she's cleaning, as she's doing all of those things, if someone would have said, Martha, why do you have the best china out? Why do you have the best silverware out? I believe Jesus would have said, leave her alone. Just like he does with Mary while she's wiping his feet. Because once again, she's worshiping. She's in devotion. She wants to do this. That's the same. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 tells us there are diversities of gifts, but the same spirit. There are differences of ministries, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of activities, but it is the same God who works all in all. Martha is laboring and she's laboring in love. And she's wanting to do this for the master. So it says, Martha served, but Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with them. Verse 3, and here come Mary. She always shines wherever she's at. Then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. They say it cost about 300 denarii, a working man's wages for a year. Some guesstimate that to be around twenty-five to $30,000. And you just put it on Jesus' feet. Josephus, Flavius Josephus tells us they probably got this from northern India at the foot of the Himalayans, and it was a red, powdery ointment, expensive, had a pugnant smell to it, a stringent smell to it. And while they're at the triclinium, lounging around the table, laying on their left side, feet out, Mary comes around to Jesus, and they're just gabbing. And she takes this red ointment and puts it on his, on his head. And it begins to run down his face and puts it, anoints his feet. Remember, it's red. And it's red all on his feet, on his feet. And just lavishes it on him. And it fills the whole room. It's almost like the tabernacle 
with all of the aroma and the senses in there, senses that's in there, and that Shekinah glory that would fill the whole place. That's what is happening in this room. Mary is very perceptive because Jesus has been saying, I'm not going to be here forever. His boys has been hearing this and they don't get it, but Mary gets it. Jesus had said this, the son of man is being betrayed into the hands of men, said this many of times, and they will kill him. And after he is killed, he will rise the third day. But they did not understand this saying and were afraid to ask him. The reason the disciples didn't understand, they were too worried about who, what? Who would be the greatest? <laughs> no, that was not Mary's issue. She wanted him right then and there, and she would have him forever. They were too busy fighting about that. Mary understood. That's why this Mary of Bethany, she was not at Jesus' grave. Mary of Bethany was not at Golgotha, at the crucifixion site, because she already knew what time it was. That's called intimacy. You can be so intimate with the Lord, I'm telling you, that other people will be all skewed and not knowing what's going on and, and, and pressure and no peace, and your world can be falling apart. And you'll have that peace. That's what the Lord has promised his children. But we've got to be intimate with him. That's what Mary has done. Jesus says, let her alone. She have kept this for my burial here. I'm reminded of David because Mary is worshiping. When he finally brings the ark to Jerusalem the correct way, and he's out there dancing and he's out there singing, I think every three paces they would slaughter an animal. And David is leading the procession and he's just partying away. And everyone is out proud and screaming and praising the Lord and he opens his door at home and there's Michael. And this is what she says in 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 22. David's reply, because Michael has said, you're, act, you're, you're looking like a fool out there worshiping the Lord. I like this, Alex, because this is your theme for the youth group. David says, and I will be even more undignified than this and will be humbled in my own sight. Jesus understands her devotion and her love for him. And once again, this aroma fills the whole room as she does this. He will say, she's done this for my day of burial. Second Corinthians chapter 2 tells us this. Now, thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place, every place we go, that aroma of Christ should be on us. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, we are the aroma of death leading to death, and to the other, the aroma of life leading to life. And who is sufficient for these things? Only the child of God can be sufficient 
for these things, spending time in his word, spending time in prayer, spending time with the believers. And when we leave from here, the aroma of Christ should be all over us. That's what's happening in this scene here. Mary is doing this all by herself, not even trying to bring any attention to herself. But the room is filled with this. It cost Mary something to worship the Lord. We can serve, but it costs something to worship because we worship him in good times and in hard times, in sickness and in health. We worship. We had a, uh, I didn't have it, but uh, I officiated a wedding yesterday and I was talking to Lydia about it and I said, I don't understand people that don't believe in the word of God. Ecclesiastes tells us a time for mourning and a time for rejoicing, a time for goodness, a time for sorrow, all of these things. And we're getting a hodgepodge of these things in the fellowship. But God is in the midst of us. God is there in whatever season you may be going through in life. We have to understand that. And that should undergird us. That should strengthen us. That when hard times come, God doesn't flee. But he even draws near. The Bible says to the brokenhearted. That's what he does. I'm reminded of David. When God was punishing him, he said, David, you shouldn't have numbered the army of Israel. So I'm going to bring, I'm going to give you three picks. Which one will you pick, David? Choose one, which I've got to chastise you. And David says, I don't want to, I'm not going to choose, let man uh, bring any judgment against me because I know man, man doesn't forget. God, you punish me. And here comes the the angel of the Lord, and he's killing people around Ornan's uh, threshing floor. And David runs there, and he says this, David says, Ornan, let me purchase the threshing floor. And Ornan says, David, you're the king. I'll give it to you. And David says, no, I'll purchase it. And this is the reason. He says, for I will not take what is yours for the Lord, nor offer burnt offerings with that which costs me nothing. It's almost just the opposite. I'm not going to say you. It's almost just the opposite for me. If it's beneficial to me, and if I did everything else I need to do or I think I need to do, then I'll minister to you, Lord. I'll serve you then because I've carved out some time that I can give to you. David said, no, 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 no. It shouldn't work like that. I should give my whole heart towards the things of the Lord. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things he will give to us. God is not a man that he should lie, or the son of man that he should repent. He says this for our own good. David says, no, I'm going to purchase this. And this woman, $25,000 to $30,000 Mary, just lavishes it with him, on him. That's amazing to me. And then she begins to be criticized. First, Mark tells us here the account is, 
Judas speaks up, the first recorded words of Judas. We'll see. But in Mark's gospel, not only did Judas begin to chime in, but when Judas began to speak, all of the disciples, yeah, he's right. We should have gave that money to the poor. (laughs) No, 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 no. The great king comes in and he rebukes. Verse 4, but one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, Why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? That sounds so spiritual. Oh, he he cares for the poor. Mm -mm. But even Judas had hoodwinked all of them. Because remember, the scripture tells us that Judas kept the money bag. And it was was because that he kept the money bag, he would go in it frequently and take out what he wanted. You think Jesus knew he was doing that? Of course he did. Uh, of course he did. He allowed. That's okay. We're going to make ends meet whether he's stealing from us or not. They didn't know at the time Judas was a thief and a traitor. Verse 6, then he said, not that he cared. This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box and he used, used to take what was put in it. But Jesus said, let her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial. He sticks up for us. And I wonder what kind of tone did he say? Did he snap, leave her alone? I don't think so. I think he was firm. He was stern. It's almost like, now this never happened to Lydia and myself before. Let me preface it with that. It's almost like, have you ever been to a neighbor's home? The the husband and wife is there and you're kicking it, having a good time. Then all of a sudden they get upset and they have quick words, harsh words with one another. And you kind of like, where can I go hide? They're in an argument. That's That's the way I think this is what happens here. He says all of a sudden, in probably a tone and a voice they've never heard him say, he rebukes Judas and the boys, leave her alone. And I go, oh gosh, we blew it. Yeah, because Jesus knows the heart. And I want to say this. I think we can all benefit by this. We need to be careful not to have a critical attitude or a critical spirit because others can be infected by that. Jesus quickly takes care of the problem. Leave her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial. For the poor you will always have. And he's right about that. We can serve the poor, we can serve the needy, and we should anytime and often. We shouldn't say be warmed and filled and do nothing about a situation. We should serve there. But God is saying, Jesus says, but me, you do not have always. There are some things that we can experience right now, and the worship team can come up, that we we will not be able to experience in the kingdom of heaven. Going out and ministering, saving souls, preaching to the lost, all of those things, we need to be benefited by that now, sitting at the feet of Jesus. Mary knows this, and she says in verse 9, Now, a great many of the Jews knew that he was there, and they came, not for Jesus' sake only, 
but that they might see, also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. But the chief priests plotted to put Lazarus to death also. Because on account of him, many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. I'll close with this. This last verse tells us that many came to see Lazarus. Because Lazarus is bringing the Messiah fame. He's bringing the Messiah glory. I tell you guys this all the time. That's the only reason we are still here. We're saved. We're born again. We're already in heaven. Why hasn't he taken us? Because we're still here to bring him glory, to bring fame to his name. That's what it's all about. All about. And we do that. Not by living perfect lives, because we will not do that here, but walking in a sphere of righteousness. Though the righteous man falls seven times, he gets back up and continue to follow Christ. People will see that. We don't have to toot our own horn. All we have to do is live for Christ, and we will bring glory, and we will bring fame to his name. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, thank you that you are acquainted with all of our needs. You know what's coming around the bend, and you are already bracing us, working on our behalf for us, Lord, because you love us. Lord, I pray that you would show yourself strong in all of our lives, Father. I pray that we would fall in love with you more, that we would understand that we are just passing through here, that this place is not our home, that you are preparing us for eternal things, that you are building for us a home in glory, that we never have to worry about sickness or sorrow or health or any of those things. But Lord, remind us also that when trials do, when you allow trials to come to us, you're using those trials for a greater, as Peter tells us, for a greater weight of glory, that when we come through on the other side, we will look more, behave more like our Savior and will stay even closer to him than we were before we went through the trial. Lord, we love you. Lord, we continue to lift up Joanne and Rick. Father, we pray that you would move mightily in their behalf. Lord, you know the needs here, and I'm sure your will will be done. So those who are on good footing right now of things are going well, may we glory in your name. Lord, we love you. May we honor you. And we ask all of these things through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, to the Father God. Amen. Let's close and stand and close with a song, please.